Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh yeah, it's Monday and this is What Doesn't Kill You. Food Industry Insights. My name is Katie Kiefer. Um, today we're going to talk about something that uh, farmers probably have a very um, mixed view about. It's called checkoff programs. And with me today on the phone is Park Wildey. He is an associate professor from the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University in Boston. He has a PhD in agricultural economics from Cornell, and he is the past chair of the Food Safety and Nutrition Section of the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association, and a current member of the Food Forum of the Institute of Medicine. Previously, he worked for the Community Nutrition Institute and for the USDA's Economic Research Service. And since 2004, he has run a highly respected blog and one that I highly recommend to all of my listeners. It's called U.S. Food Policy, A Public Interest Perspective. Um, He is also the author of Food Policy in the United States, which was discussed on this program in January of 2014. If you want to go back and have a listen through our archive, it's episode number 98. Welcome back to the show, Park. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I love talking to you, especially when you told me how great my questions were. Boy, do I love flattery. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. Um, Anyway, let's start because, uh, you know, I got interested. I saw, I guess it was on Politico, and uh, a reporter had uh, written about Chekhov and had quoted you, and that sent me back to your wonderful blog. Um, Let's talk about, uh, first of all, what are Chekhov programs and how did they evolve? Right, because I I think people aren't very much aware about how these programs work, even though they know the advertising slogan. So we all know the slogans like beef, it's what's for dinner, or pork, the other way, meat, or the got milk ads. Um, But not many people understand where these come from. So these come from sort of semi-public, semi-industry boards that use the federal government's power of taxation to collect a mandatory assessment from the producers. That producer money gets pooled and is then used to spend on things that support the industry's interests, including advertising and promotion right. or research on improving the product, that type of thing. Yeah, it's more, um, and I, I should say that in other countries, I, if I'm not completely mistaken, I believe it's used more for research and development and less on promotion, interestingly enough, and more on promotion and less on research and development here, but you can correct me on that. Um, so... Uh, so the checkoff program, I mean, the reason you and I got hooked up again here is because the checkoff program, it turned out uh, in the pork, uh, on the pork side of things, and there is one for every agricultural sector, right? I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're growing mushrooms or meat, you're still participating in the checkoff program. And also, how much money does it take? It's like 40 cents on the $100, 40 cents for That's every $100 right. is mandatorily... Yeah, it's different in each of these programs. So it's, mm-hmm. it's 40 cents on the $100 for pork, and, um, you know, it's a dollar per head of cattle for beef. Right. And, and the, the representation, though, it does, there is a mushroom board um, but, and an avocado board, yeah. but it, it's not equal across the products. Um, the, the biggest boards are for um, beef, pork, fluid milk, and dairy products, including cheese. 
Right. And um, even other major products like poultry doesn't have one, for example, so there's no chicken or turkey checkoff board. Um, it's a little willy-nilly. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, I always thought there was because there's the American Poultry Producers Council and there's the um, the Amer- there's another chicken council or chicken producers or there's the NPPC. What is it? The no- no, that's pork. National. Right, right. Anyway. But National I- Pork Producers Council. And yeah. this, is, this is one of the things that makes checkoff programs interesting because I think the public confuses them with um, – with uh, industry organizations, traditional trade associations. Right. And so every industry has a trade association. And, and for that one, um, producers pay dues, but it's voluntary. And if the, if the industry organization doesn't meet a farmer's needs, the farmer can just choose not, not to support it. Right. And these, these checkoff programs are a little different just because of the federal government's involvement in, in, in making them mandatory. And yeah. so it's kind of surprising that they're in some industries, but not others. That is interesting. And they are ultimately responsible to the United States Department of Agriculture. Am I right? And that's, um, well, we'll get to that. But um, so that, and that's why it is mandatory that they part, that those within those checkoff programs actually do, you know, spend their dollar ahead of cattle or their 40, 40 cents per hundred dollars in the pork uh, sector of it. It's, it's, there's no... You can't opt out of this. I mean, for instance, a Nyman Ranch pork producer um, who is producing niche brand pork cannot say, no, checkoff doesn't really meet my needs. I'm not going to participate. They participate regardless. I think it's important to make that distinction. So um, how did they, how did checkoff actually start? It was Dan Glickman, wasn't it? A former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture I, who I'm got not, that going? I'm not sure which secretary it was. At, at the time, you know, all of them are backed by congressional legislation at one point or another. So uh-huh. in, a way, in a way, the prime, prime mover is Congress. Um, right. since, since about the 1980s, the trade associations had sometimes been wishing that they could make their dues essentially mandatory. Um, and so Congress started to pass these legislations for checkoff programs. And the, in the initial stages, farmers were required to have a referendum, and the checkoff program would only start to take action if the farmers supported it with a majority of greater than 50% of the votes. Uh-huh. Um, but the, since then, those referenda haven't really been held anymore. So like oh, for beef, for pork, uh, there, there hasn't been a referendum for ages. Well, let's, let's uh, move along here because I, wa- I, I do want to get through these two um, cases that uh, attracted both of our attention. And, then, um, and there's even a third that you pointed out on your blog about how um, the dairy checkoff hasn't produced a report for Congress in, oh, we don't know how many, long, how many years. Um, but so the other white meat slogan, which, of course, virtually every man, woman, and child in America is familiar with, uh, the other white meat slogan kind of went out of fashion or it stopped being used Oh, what, in 2011? Or was it even before that? 2006, that, that sounds maybe? Right. It was several years ago. Yep. Yeah. And then, um, and so, but in that intervening time, someone decided from the National Pork Board, which is independent from the National Pork Producers Council, which one of them is the checkoff? The Pork Board, the right? The Pork Board is. Yeah. Right. Now, who owned the slogan? So originally the slogan was um, the copyright was technically owned by the National Pork Producers Council. Right. Part of what makes this difficult for your listeners is that there's sometimes these pairs of organizations in a particular industry. So the National Pork Board is the semi-public checkoff program that's closely connected to the federal government. The National Pork Producers Council is a traditional trade association. And the reason the distinction matters is because there's rules 
for overseeing the Chekhov program, the right. National Pork Board. For example, that money can't be used for lobbying. But right. the National Pork Producers Council can do whatever it wants with its money. And so the sale of this slogan was really about shifting more of this kind of large fund of money from the pork board to the National Pork Producers Council. It, you know, usually that would require some type of contract, right, that requires the National Pork Producers Council to do some type of work on behalf of the pork board. <laughs> yeah. But in this case, they wanted to move the money more and faster. And so they thought, why don't we just sell the intellectual property right to the slogan? Um, so the National Pork Producers Council would be the seller, the pork board would be the buyer, they would pay $60 million to the Pork Producers Council, and um, the Pork Producers Council wouldn't have to do any work for it. Right. And then, then they could use that money for whatever they wanted, most notably including lobbying or including attacking their opponents or, or right. whatever it else it is they wanted to do. And, and let's reveal just how much money we're talking about here, because it is a mind-boggling sum. So the total for all the checkoff programs is about half a billion dollars a year. Wow. And so that's very large relative to any communication that goes on, for example, to support the dietary guidelines or to support fruits and vegetables. Um, it's still small by comparison, for example, to a major sugar-sweetened beverage manufacturer's advertising budget. Yeah. Um, but relative to other commodity promotions, the, 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 these people are playing in the big leagues. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the sale of this slogan, <clears throat> which has been retired for some years and not likely right. to be used by others or um, or to be revived even at this point, uh, that sale went through to the tune of something like $20 million, right? Yeah. In fact, it, it's, it's $3 million a year for 20 years. Oh, so, so the total it's $60. Is $60 million. $60 million. And, Lovely. And, so when, when I first came across this in about 2006, the, you know, just as an economist, I got curious. Sure. How does somebody come up with a number like that? And I was, I'd recently been a homeowner, right, for the first time. And yeah. I thought, well, when we, when we buy a house, there's an appraisal, right? They look at sort of nearby properties and see, right. see what the value is. And I wondered if there was an appraisal for this uh, sale. So I started asking the USDA, could you please share the appraisal on which this price was based? That they, they wouldn't share it. Uh-huh. So, I had to do a Freedom of Information Act request Incredible. and eventually got, got some documents, but with all the good stuff blacked out. So it was, right. hey, you know. And that took you like six years. And then, uh, then we can't tell you what it said. Uh, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. We conducted an appraisal for the better white meat, uh, but, which we no longer use. But here we came up with this figure and... Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Because I mean, this really, it just boggles the mind. This whole story is so incredible. Right. And this was in fact about two years before they stopped using the slogan. And so Ah. they they reached the agreement with the sale based on an appraisal, which was predicated on the idea that this was still a valuable slogan. I see. And then um, they, they persuaded the USDA to approve this sale. And so the National Pork Producers Council started to get the $3 million per year. And um, they then, two years later, the, uh, everybody decided that the slogan wasn't really worth using anymore, um, that they were going to switch to a new slogan. And um, now the $3 million payments still happen, though. Um, right. Even though, by the way, the National Pork Board contractually 
has an out that they could exercise if they wanted to exercise, saying that if something happens to the value of this property, that they no longer have to pay pay for it. So that's um, in the but, contract. You know, but they've continued is, to pay. They have but continued the fact to that pay. they don't want to exercise it uh, sort of tells you that, 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 that everybody is really sort of agreed on, on what the goal is here, which is right. to shift the money from the pork board to the National Pork Producers Council. Right. And that brings us to how the uh, Humane Society of the United States got involved in this. So w- what happened then? So the, the Humane Society of the United States actually brought a suit Right. Against... And the Humane Society got interested because one of the things that happens with the checkoff money as the N- National Pork Board um, funds pro- projects and industry initiatives that address industry concerns right. is that they, they get to um, work on messaging in response to criti- criticism of the industry. Right. And so they, the Humane Society of the United States, which, by, by the way, you know, We've got. I've got kind of a mutual respect relationship with them, but I'm not myself a an animal rights or animal welfare activist by sure. by inclination. We, I've just got a good governance theme and ended up following their work with interest. Um, they they um, they started to ask why are the attacks on us so well funded, and right. started to inquire where where did this money come from? And so then then they started reading old things that I had written, which had not been widely read, and. Uh, <laughs> And started to, will um, be now. started to look into uh, <laughs> what, what, what was up with the sale. And so then they're the ones who brought this lawsuit. So they brought a lawsuit against the National Pork Producers Council, right? Right. Because the National Pork Producers Council was using that $3 million a year to lobby for and to bring attack ads against the Humane Society of the United States. And obviously to lobby Congress probably for, you know, other sinecures or benefits to the overall large scale pork producers in this country. That's it in a nutshell. I'm so glad I was able to put it in a nutshell, Park. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, so then the, the suit was dismissed. A couple yes. years ago, on grounds that the farmer involved didn't have standing, so the Humane Society, um, which which of course isn't paying checkoff money itself, right? So in a way, the the you could see how the law could say, well, why should they bring a lawsuit because it's not really their business? But they they were working cooperatively with a couple farmers, one one farmer and one farm org- organization, uh-huh. and um, the court said. The, even the farmer didn't have any standing. Like the farmer Kidding. didn't have any business asking how was his money being spent. Right. And um, that's the decision that was overturned this summer. Right. And so this was really fun for me to read was the decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals in August because the judge said, overturned the lower court and said, no, no, this farmer has standing. Of course, anybody who's paying a mandatory assessment has good reason to wonder whether the money is being well spent, because, of course, their interests are at stake if the money is being spent well or poorly. Of course. And, um, and, but the judge also took the time not just to rule that the farmer had standing, but even though it wasn't even really quite the judge's responsibility, to summarize the whole argument in what I thought was a really eloquent and lucid way. Wow. And so I, I just felt this like sense of relief after all these years that, oh, Somebody, somebody who can write English very clearly <laughs> took the time to understand what's going on here. Yeah. Um, and disseminate an opinion, which no doubt brought 
a great consternation into the hearts and minds of the NPB and the NPPC, the checkoff right. and the trade and the and the association that is responsible for lobbying Congress and promoting the the business in other ways. Um, right. It took you six years to sort of from start to finish, didn't it? I mean, sure, didn't, didn't sure. you wait a really no. long time for those freedom of information, for that freedom of information request to, um, you know, get through the process? And then and then you, you got it and it was redacted. And then somehow, I guess, in the course of the up- overturn of that of that decision, right. you got you were able to get your hands on the original document. Right. In fact, the, the length of time is a slightly sensitive subject with me, and I, I should mention, in case any of my bosses ever listen to this, that I've been working on other things in the meantime, yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that it, that it redounds uh, to your discredit that it took this long. I think it says something about uh, how those Freedom of Information Acts work their way through the system and how much obfuscation and uh, otherwise efforts to suppress them uh, are possible. Uh, with those interested parties who don't really want to um, to fess up. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you one more question about the suit, um, because Secretary Vilsack is named in this suit. And, and why is that? And, and, and what response has the USDA given, if any, to the news that, this, um, that the uh, appeal is going forward and that the suit has been reopened? You, you know, I, there, there's parts of the legal details of this that I don't fully understand, but mm-hmm. um, I think the secretary shouldn't take that personally. Um, I think it's I think it's not because he, he he did anything in particular on this. I think it's just because he's the person in authority speaking for USDA, yeah. and it's the USDA agency, the Agricultural Marketing Service, that has responsibility for overseeing the checkoff boards and for approving decisions such as the expenditure for the sale of the slogan. So you would think, though, that somebody fairly high up in USDA would have scratched their head over the idea that farmers were still paying 40 cents on the $100 uh, to support a slogan that was had been retired uh, several years previously. Wouldn't you think that somebody would notice that at right. USDA? Because <laughs> well, you know, the thing on my mind is, um, I so much value USDA's work on other topics, including its role cooperatively with the Health and Human Services Department in promoting dietary guidelines, which encourages yeah. balanced diet, right? And so I think that's part of my distress over this, is that it, it, seems, um, it seems at odds with some of the other good things that the department does. I think that the department does some good things, and I think that the department uh, leaves a lot of good things undone due to pressures from externalities and primarily lobbyists. But um, we can discuss that. Um, Let's take a short break because we're going to do a segue and we're going to start talking about the American Egg Board, where there was yet another scandal most recently, um, about actually about the same time as as this kind of cropped up, this whole uh, revival of the suit, and uh, and we'll talk about that more with uh, Professor Park Wilde from Tufts University, so stay tuned. And you're listening right now to Meeting at the Docks by Rectech. We'll be right back.
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com. And we're going to go much deeper into this checkoff business. This is Katie Kiefer, the host of What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. My guest today is Professor Park Wilde from the Friedrich, uh, excuse me, the Friedman School of Nutritional Science and Policy at at Tufts University. Um, And we're talking about uh, these mandatory marketing programs uh, that producers are obliged uh, by the Justice Department to contribute to, whether or not they serve their needs. Um, And so another one of these checkoff programs is one that governs the Egg Board. It's called the American Egg Board. Um, and it was recently embroiled in um, quite a scandal. Um, this even made the um, the mainstream press over uh, a product called Just Mayo, which is a non-egg-based um, spread for, you know, whatever, for foods. I don't eat mayonnaise myself, so but but everybody else does. And um, so tell us a little bit about their about this scandal, because this was quite an eye opener and really, in, in some ways, even scarier than what was happening with um, uh, with the NPB and the NPPC. Well, the, just just mayo, as you know, is a, a, a non egg um, spread that's kind of like mayonnaise and is being sold by some major retailers like Whole Foods. Yeah. And as you can imagine, because it's kind of a substitute or a competitor for mayonnaise that has eggs, that people in the egg industry were concerned about it. And it really is sort of what, what the checkoff funds are designed to be use, used for, is to respond to threats or concerns for the industry. And so the American Egg Board um, had a internal correspondence as it turned out, about yeah. what they could do to um, to uh, uh, avoid the problems of increased consumer interest in this alternative to mayonnaise. And right. I think the problem arose, though, because there's rules that they have to operate under, including um, not criticizing competitors. Right. And I, I think that those rules, kind of like the rules that we discussed in the first half about not being allowed to use checkoff money for lobbying, come from the nature of the federal government role in these checkoff boards. It, like We could all understand one industry organization criticizing a competitor, but we can't really understand the federal government in its own voice endorsing um, efforts to slam what seems to be an environmentally interesting, at least, yeah. spread. And certainly for vegans or anybody else who doesn't want to eat eggs, it's a perfectly legitimate product. I mean, you know, I think it's what I thought was interesting. I mean, I didn't have a problem with because I know that they spent uh, some $32,000 in hiring food bloggers to uh, endorse recipes with eggs or 10 reasons why you should eat eggs. I didn't have a problem with that. But what was quite disturbing was in an email exchange, which was highlighted by an excellent report by Michelle Simon, who's an attorney uh, of who runs a fantastic blog called Eat Drink Politics. Um, she highlights an an email between the director of the Egg Board, Joanne Ivey, who um, suggests to some of her colleagues that they hire a, um, I guess, a... Um, public relations expert who apparently had sufficient clout to call to make one call to Whole Foods to get that product off their shelves. 
Now that is definitely a clear violation of the checkoff program, right? I, I think so. As I read the rule, they're not really supposed to, um, they're supposed to spend their time sort of constructively building up their own industry rather right. than criticizing competitors. This, this matters because you could think for, given that there's checkoff programs for beef and for pork, you wouldn't really want the beef ads to be encouraging less consumption of pork and simultaneously sure. the pork ads to be conserving, <laughs> encouraging less consumption of beef. That would sort of have a beggar thy neighbor quality that, yeah. that would be unseemly. And so um, it, 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 <laughs> it, I don't think anybody ever occurred to them that the rule would end up being of some use to a vegetarian alternative to mayonnaise, but, you know, <laughs> right. the surprises that arise in food policy. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I thought, I thought that was really uh, creepy and scary that they would literally uh, feel so threatened by, let's face it, a product that is not going to appeal to all that many people. I mean, I don't think just mayo is that much of a threat to egg eating in the United States and around the world. But be that as it may, the idea that you could make a phone call and have a large corporation decide that they would not carry that product on their shelves. Uh, to me, the, you know, the, the guys who, who grow eggs, I can't imagine that they would support that, even though they're paying for it. Um, and I think that it's just downright illegal, um, or should be. So has Hampton Creek, the producer of Just Mayo, filed a lawsuit against the Egg Board or against the USDA for that matter? You know, I don't know the legal status, whether there's a lawsuit or, or merely a complaint. Um, but in any case, I, I, you could tell from the emails that they were not expecting these emails to become public. No. And th that is itself interesting, because once the industry has decided that they really need the federal government's assistance and they need to be in a relationship with the federal government in order to have the mandatory assessment, it means that they're exposed to public public information rules. Sure, like they have the to give Freedom of Information, information Act. Act, right? <laughs> so that it's a bit of a shock, I think, for them to find their, uh, find their emails in the, in the news. They, they, they might have phrased it differently. They were gross, those emails. I really urge people to look up these stories because it's quite widely covered in the press. It's easy to find. And um, you can read those. And even on your blog, I think you quote some of them, don't you, Park? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really it's fun reading, folks. I I really endorse it. Um. So, what about the USDA? Have they come out with any comment on this? No, I, I think they're a, a, avoiding a statement. I, <laughs> I imagine some, something will will come up on it, and it also involves the FDA because the FDA. Um. Part of the emails were about trying to encourage the FDA to to raise a question about the standard of identity in the use of the name Just Mail, and oh. this is itself. Its own arcane world of food policy is right. these rules about, um, you know, in order to call something bread, it has to have the ingredients that the consumer expects bread to have. Right. And there really is a legitimate question about if the product is being named mayonnaise. Uh, uh, but it's but, not but made with eggs. Right. It needs. It might need an asterisk if it if it doesn't have eggs in it. And so so then you could ask, well, is just mayo a name that's different enough from mayonnaise? Um, uh, you know. Uh, it's even got an egg symbol on the label. So it, it, it's not that there was no grounds for questioning the label. But right. I think... Uh, I That's think, a separate uh, issue, though, you know, from, from, trying yeah. to get, from trying to get this product tossed out of, of a major uh, grocery market chain. Um, that is a good That's question. Exactly that is a good point, though, because, I mean, you know, Miracle Whip has to call itself Miracle Whip because it has no eggs in it, right? It's just an oil spread. 
that, that's right. I mean, I don't and eat so Miracle I'm, Whip either, so I don't really know what's in yeah. it. But um, I think yeah. it's just vegetable oil with flavorings. That's and right. It sounds like just mayo. Have you looked into the nutri- what you know what the um, what the ingredients are in that? I have. I've never bought it. So. Yeah. No, I think it's vegetable oil based, and I'm not sure of the details. Uh huh. Okay. I'm easy enough to find out. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, to go on uh, in our for our next 15 minutes is that these two examples, um, along with the fact that the dairy checkoff has failed to provide Congress with any reports on its progress in boosting dairy consumption, um, these two or three examples provide to me a pretty clear picture of what uh, may have initially been a well-intentioned program to boost various industry, industries in the agricultural sector, but which have really um, kind of evolved into what I think are very scary groups that seem willing to lie, cheat, and steal, <laughs> to put it bluntly. I mean, so is the, is, what is the oversight for checkoff programs? I mean, you said earlier that uh, the USDA was supposed to be keeping tabs on these people. Um, is the Department of Justice or the Attorney General investigating any of these violations? Is there any, are there any repercussions uh, to how the program is run or who the people are who are running it? I mean, what's happening with that? So the, 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 the government role comes to play in several respects. One is that the Secretary of Agriculture actually appoints the members of these boards, um, but appoints them from lists provided by the industry. So it really is intended to be kind of an industry organization, but with that USDA involvement. Um, the individual contracts and messages and slogans and so forth have to be approved by the Agricultural Marketing Service. And then the Office of the Inspector General at USDA has a role in making sure that the money and the procedures are being followed properly, the Uh accounting is being done right. And the Inspector General has, over the years, come down hard on the checkoff programs at one time or another. For example, sometimes their relationship is too close to the corresponding trade association, Mm -hmm. like the, the, the Beef Checkoff Board was for a long time at the same address as the as the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, right? Yes. So that over, over, over the years, they've cleaned that up a bit. Um, but, yeah, uh, and the but, National Pork Board shared offices with the National Pork Producers Council, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I and, think they saw themselves as kind of the same, you know, twin sides of the same coin, which I suppose they are in a way. And, and so now, now there's somewhat more of a wall between the two organizations. They, they have separate accounts, for example, now. But um, the the... the the thing is, other, other aspects of USDA and of the federal government interest in, in these issues isn't being represented. So even to the extent that the inspector general has been trying to make sure things are done properly, the inspector general's goal is to make sure that money's not being, um, you know, corruptly moved to a private bank account, right? The, the yeah. inspector general hasn't really been asking questions like, well, given that we, we, we want good food at a reasonable price and we want good diets and we want environmental sustainability, are these checkoff programs serving all of these interests that, that, that are really the federal government's and really the people's interest? Yes. Um, but nobody, I think, is asking those questions. Let me ask you this. How much input... Uh, I'm, I guess we, we sort of touched on this in the first segment, but just to go back again, like how much do farmers get to vote or comment or suggest um, programs or, you know, in, in any way respond to the activities of these checkoff programs? I mean, how much involvement are the, the people who are supporting this? How much involvement do they get to have? I, I think that the checkoff programs genuinely, for good reason, make an effort to engage their farmers. 
to engage their producers. Uh-huh. Um, in each of these industries, I think producers have a sense that the checkoff program is more responsive to the large producers than to the small producers. Uh-huh. But the checkoff program knows that it has to engage all of its producers because even though there hasn't been a referendum lately, um, that they would be in more political trouble if they lost too much support among their own producers. Right. And so I think for all of these checkoff programs, the producer support tends to be well above 50%. Um, it's nowhere near 100%. Right. Um, and so, you know, whether you're a supporter or a non-supporter, you still have to pay the pay the fee. The people who tend not to be supporters are are producers, kind of like some that you already mentioned, who who tend to be niche producers yeah. or produced for a premium in some way. For example, if you're if you're producing beef for a local steakhouse, so you're producing a specialty product that's higher quality than average, you're earning a premium price from the steakhouse for it. Um, what 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 good does it do you to have some guy in a hat on TV saying beef it's what's for dinner, right? It, it, you know, it doesn't affect your own demand. And so for a producer like that, it's just wasted money. I don't know if I agree with you on that point. I think that uh, uh-huh. I think that in the current climate of of people moving away from meat as kind of the center of the plate, I, I don't care what part of the of the agri- of the agricultural segment you belong to. You'd probably like to ha- know that you know your your dollar ahead for cattle is going whether it's you know prime or whether it's you know select you know if you want to look at the spectrum of how it's graded or whatever you know that you're getting some kind of a bang for your buck i i would feel really quite mad um and in fact when i was at this uh pork uh, you know the nyman ranch um farmers appreciation dinner this weekend in iowa i asked one of the guys who i was sitting next to a farmer who'd been with the nyman ranch program for 10 years i said how do you feel about the pork checkoff program and he just shrugged his shoulders and said you know i it doesn't it doesn't do anything for me, but it should right. be doing something for him. He's paying into it. I mean, right. and there's no way the Justice Department has made it clear that these guys cannot opt out. And I, I think that's very unfair. I think if you're working hard, I mean, these guys may be getting a higher premium for their products, but it also costs them a lot more to make their animals than it does uh, for commodity producers. Although right. I will no, tell, in fact, I think we're agreed on this because the, 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 these are producers then who um, feel ill-served by the yeah. by, by the payments they make to the checkoff board. Most definitely, and it, and they don't have any input into how uh, how their product or how the product overall is being marketed. It's just you know, it's just somebody comes up with a random slogan like "beef, it's what's for dinner," and you better hope that you you know. That you derive some benefit from that particular thing. Um, I, I, I did one of the things that was really fascinating about the uh, the farmers appreciation dinner, which I, I can't say enough about. It was like a giant love fest. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Um, our secretary of agriculture happened to show up and give a speech, um, and he assured all of the Nyman Ranch farmers, of which there were about two hundred at this event. Um, there are seven hundred and sixty-two family farms that are involved in the Nyman Ranch effort, um, and about two hundred of them, mostly from the state of Iowa. Obviously, it was out in Des Moines. Um, appeared at this event uh, with their various family members in tow. Um, 
And he, you know, he gave this long speech. It really was quite long. It was about 20 minutes uh, about how much they appreciate, you know, the small farmers and how important it is to revive rural economies and so forth. Um, but I, I got to ask you, I mean, Tom Vilsack has been the U.S. Secretary of the Department of Agriculture for seven plus years. At this point, he came in with Obama in his first term. What what, if any, programs are you aware of, besides Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food, um, has the USDA done or, you know, engaged in that, that does work with uh, the smaller farmers as opposed to continuing to support the large commodity producers? Can you I, think of I, any? I, I, well... <laughs> I think there are there are um, sort of rural economic development programs. There, there's some things that one can mention, but your your point is fundamentally totally on uh, correct that that um, because the main way that USDA supports farmers is through you know industry wide subsidy and crop insurance programs, right. it, it tends to provide more of the support, relatively speaking, to larger producers who are operating on a larger scale. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, we we were um, this is a really interesting part of the of the educational part of the weekend park. You would have enjoyed this and I'm sure you're aware of something called the Steiner uh, Steiner statistics. It's a uh, they quoted these extensively, and I, I'm sure you've seen them, but they show you sort of the average prices over, you know, over a period of years for commodity pork, and then they and then they compared those with uh, the prices for Nyman Ranch pork producers, which were substantially higher. Um, those, you know, the Nyman Ranch guys are making out a lot better because at this particular point in time, commodity producers are actually losing money per head, uh, whereas the Nyman Ranch people are actually making money. And you'd think with all of the not necessarily the subsidies, but the but the insurance programs because they they switched from from subsidies to insurance, didn't they? Uh, in terms sure. of how they fund big you know commodity outfits, um, and it was I thought to myself, boy, if I were in the commodity business, I'd be feeling really mad about this. I mean, why is it with you know we have a big inventory? In fact, today I read we have the largest inventory of hogs we've had in ages, despite the big pork epidemic last year, and uh, these guys are getting a lower price than ever for their for their hogs. So what does that say about the USDA and how things are shaken out? Right. No, in fact, uh, the pork pork and beef producers are under stress by long-term declines in how much people are demanding demanding those products. You know, with, within the beef industry in particular, there's d- divisions about how this checkoff money gets spent. The, the, most of the checkoff money goes to the prime contractor, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Yes. And that, that is the most supported trade association in the beef industry. But there, there's others, and, and some beef producers in particular regions are asking questions about why isn't that checkoff money spread more evenly across the various trade associations? Why, why does it all go to one of them? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Why but do you I think, think that their is? voices aren't really being heard on that. No, I mean I know that there's another uh, rival organization called RCAF, R hyphen C A L F, and I unfortunately cannot remember what the acronym means. Um, but they are very bitter about uh, how those checkoff funds are are spent and um, and have protested it regularly. I think to the USDA to no avail. Um, what what does it mean uh, these checkoff funds that are that are not supposed to be used for lobbying but end up being used for lobbying? Um, how, how does that affect uh, 
food policy overall and the way, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about, let me backtrack for a second to go back to that speech of Vilsack's, he was talking about rebuilding rural America. Well, part of the reason rural America has fallen apart is because of the consolidation of these large animal agricultural concerns where, you know, an entire town will be dependent on a Tyson plant, right? And, right. And so if that plant decides to move, then that town has gone bust. And so you're not really supporting family farms when you're constantly giving money to big companies like Tyson. Um and and so that is not really supporting the rural economy. So I, I I'm just I'm curious about this kind of double speak. I mean, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. On the one side, they're like, oh yes, we want to support rural economies, but on the other side, they're not really doing anything to support rural economy in the sense of allowing it to re-diversify. Can I say? You know what? I'm am I making sense here? I know I'm sort of going off on a tangent, sure. but um, and you know, there's there's a couple ways that the. USDA or that especially the committees in Congress that o- oversee these programs could kind of proceed to, to, to resolve some of the questions about checkoffs in particular. They, w- one of the things they could do is, of course, just withdraw the federal support. And if they did, that doesn't mean there wouldn't be trade associations. You know, it right. means all these small farmers would be able to choose the organization that they want to support. Large farmers could choose the one they wanted to support. Um, but the, the other thing USDA could do is if it keeps the mandatory assessments, is it could take steps towards increasing the diversity of voices that have influence over the design of these programs. And you, you've mentioned a couple times small farmers, and I think that's great to add to the list. But, you know, as an economist in a nutrition school, I think great, greater attention to overall soundness of dietary guidance should, should, should be added to the list of things that these, these programs would be tasked to do if they have the federal government's endorsement. Right. Which we, the taxpayer, is paying for. That, that, that's and the right. producers and are paying for it through their checkoff funds right now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and so then, I, then that begs the question of why the USDA has fallen so far short of, of doing the kind of regulation and due diligence and monitoring how those funds are spent um, that we have just described in these two examples of, you know, trying to knock a food product off of the store shelves. And, and then in the other case of, of misappropriating funds from, from farmers' pockets, essentially. Like, I, I, I don't I, get I why that, that there's no oversight and why can't we fund that if we're funding everything else? You know what I mean? You know, I've got, I've got maybe some hope that with recent public attention, pe- people might start to s- scrutinize this a little more. Um, but I think traditionally the answer is that the you know large large producers um, have been fairly satisfied with the with the programs and, and sure. they have a good deal of influence with the with the committees in Congress that send the instructions to the USDA about how these programs should run in the first place. Right. Well, I find that very scary. And you know, it's, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's just it's scary. It's like so the biggest guy, the biggest gorilla in the room wins. And all the other little gorillas just have to, like, hang on by their toenails, which is what they're doing. Although, as I just pointed out, the Nyman Ranch guys, because they are aggregated and because it's it's not a co-op, but it's but Nyman Ranch acts as a marketing and distribution partner, and they obviously do a bang-up job, and they guarantee the prices. Which, by the way, what did you th- – let me ask you about this because I'll be doing a program on it soon. Um, what did you think of the sale of Nyman Ranch to the Purdue company? Right. So with, with a lot of these brands that have a lot of value 
a lot of reputational value among kind of well-meaning consu- consumers. Um, this, this is very nice because they're, they're walking a line that's interesting to follow about yes. still having a sense of principle, marketing on a sense of principle, raising their, raising their product on a sense of principle, um, but also being fairly connected to the large-scale distribution systems that, that do require some compromises. Yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, they gave a tremendous sales pitch for it. And, you know, what I walked away from was, um, from it thinking was, in the end, uh, much as it might have been dismaying to people in the progressive food movement uh, to see, you know, a sacred cow like, or I should say a sacred pig like Diamond <laughs> Ranch go down, uh, go down into the service of Purdue. Um, you know, in the end, I think that's what we all want on a certain level. We want to see uh, large uh, commodity producers like Purdue, you know, pay up big time for the branding and reputation that Nyman Ranch has because they see the value of it to consumers and it is to be hoped that they will learn and they claim they're going to, that they will be learning from the Nyman Ranch example and that uh, they will be offering nothing more than, you know, more distribution support, more IT support, et cetera, uh, which the Nyman people certainly need if they want to expand uh, their family farms. And they do. They want to expand business. They want to expand into beef. Uh, they're thinking about expanding into chicken, into poultry. Um, and that would be a great thing for all consumers and a great thing for small farmers. I mean, the guy that I sat next to, sorry to dominate this last little bit, but the guy that I sat next to had been with uh, Nyman for 10 years. I said, why did you get into bed with Nyman 10 years ago? And he said, because I didn't want to spend the money on building one of those big houses for the pigs. And I didn't want to treat my pigs that way. Right. And it was just like, I mean, I could have burst into tears just hearing that. But it was it's $750,000 to build one of those big pig sheds. And it's about $50,000 to get started in the Nyman Ranch model with the hoop houses. It's just... right. So it's an entryway to new producers. Anyway, unfortunately, we have to hold, we have to stop there, Park. But I want to thank you so much for being on the show and uh, giving us your perspective, which is different from mine and different from theirs. <laughs> uh, you're nowhere near as much of a muckraker as I would really like, though. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have heard you say, yes, they should be investigated and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But no, <laughs> fortunately, you have a more measured attitude. Um, but thank you so much. And um, another time, let's talk about lobbying. I'd love to. I'd love to discuss lobbying with you on another program because I do think that that's uh, something that has distorted uh, food politics just as it has distorted every other aspect of it. So, um, thanks for being on the show. Many thanks to my sponsor, of course, Kane Winery. As always, um, my break music today was provided by Rectech, um, and the theme song to my show is Dead Stars. Um, next up, you'll be hearing a short clip of Inside School Food by the Estimable. Laura Stanley, one of my favorite hosts. And uh, don't forget, I have a Facebook page. It's called What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. You are invited to comment there. Or please comment on our new website. Folks, if you haven't checked out the new website, go there. Because I'm going to be starting to sling uh, all kinds of interesting blogs and uh, links to articles, including Park uh, Wildey's excellent blog on food policy um, and uh, and Marion Nessels and, and many other of my regular guests. Uh, so do take a look at the 
website if you haven't already. It's pretty exciting stuff. And um, and thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now. Farm to school, is, it just simply is a bipartisan issue. Tina Garland of the Kentucky Department of Agriculture talks about the state of farm to school on Inside School Food. Farm to school is one of those issues that works across the aisle and, you know, affects child health as much as it does farmer wealth. And thus, for that reason, we remain very optimistic. And honestly, since February, we have continued to get more members of Congress from both sides of the aisle wanting to kind of jump on the bill and support it because I think folks see it as a real opportunity not only to advance health and economic development, but also to make all the other school meal programs just work better. Yeah. When kids, you know, as I said earlier, are growing the food in the school garden or they're meeting the farmer, they have that connection. They're going to be more willing to taste and try and like new and healthier foods. So a lot of folks are recognizing that important point and really catalyst that Farm to School provides for all the other meal programs. Want to hear more about the fight for food literacy and the state of American school food? Listen to all archived episodes of Inside School Food, hosted by Laura Stanley on HeritageRadioNetwork.org and iTunes. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.